Greenhouse gas emissions. When you think about where they come from, what comes to mind? Traffic as far as the eye can see, the smell of gasoline, huge turbines firing fossil fuels to meet our electricity demands, or perhaps air conditioning fighting against the summer heat, or the crackling of stoves to make our food. It's true, transportation, electricity generation, and buildings are all big sources of GHGs that must be decarbonized. But it turns out that there's an answer that very few people think about on a regular basis, and it's arguably the biggest problem. I'm Anthony Chang, and this is Industrial Decarbonization, the Final Emissions Frontier. If you just look at where global greenhouse gas emissions come from, the largest single sector is the industrial sector. This is Dr. Rebecca Dell of the Climate Works Foundation, where she works on industrial decarbonization strategy. Now, when I say the largest sector in terms of emissions, just direct emissions from industrial facilities, so the stuff that's coming out of the smokestacks of factories, that's a quarter of global emissions. If we also include all of the emissions that comes from generating the energy and the electricity that's consumed by industrial facilities, we go from a quarter of emissions up to 36%. So comfortably more than a third of all the greenhouse gas emissions are coming from making, transforming, and disposing of stuff. That's clearly a huge factor that most people don't account for. Electricity generation, transportation, and buildings are all critical sectors. Each sector is also responsible for about 25% of world emissions. Industrial emissions are growing much faster, though. Between 1990 and 2014, industrial emissions increased 69%, while emissions from the other sectors only increased by 23%. To achieve the goal of limiting global warming to 2 degrees Celsius versus pre-industrial levels, we'd need to reduce emissions by 80 to 90% of the 1990 levels by 2050. Keep in mind, the Paris Agreement was targeting a limit of 1.5 degrees. For reference, we're currently around one degree of warming. With increased demand for industry as the world develops, it's clear that this sector needs drastic change. To better understand why industrial emissions are considered hard to abate, we're going to break down this complex problem into approachable parts. First, we're going to dive into the main contributors to industrial greenhouse gas emissions and understand how the processes inherently make decarbonization quite nuanced. Then, we'll take a crack at understanding some current solutions to the problem and see where they fall short. Then, we'll see what researchers, organizations, and governments are doing to push for progress on this problem. The crazy thing is, the majority of emissions in the industrial sector come from just three products. If we just look at the direct emissions, as I said, the, the greenhouse gases that are coming out of the smokestacks of factories, two-thirds of those emissions come from three industries, steel, cement, and chemicals. Just the steel industry, which is the highest emitting industry in the world, emits more greenhouse gases than the nation of India. The only countries in the world that have higher greenhouse gas emissions than the steel sector are the U.S. and China. Steel and cement each both contribute about 7 to 10 percent of emissions, but that number doesn't include emissions from electricity used to drive machines or keep the lights on. 
These process emissions are nearly completely due to the steel and cement chemical processes, as well as combusting fossil fuels to create ultra-high temperatures for these chemical reactions to occur. For steel and cement, that can mean temperatures of 1200 and 1400 degrees Celsius, respectively, for hours on end. For reference, most plastics melt around 200 degrees Celsius, and 500 degrees is plenty high enough to melt pure zinc metal. High temperature heat is typically defined as anything at a temperature above 500 degrees Celsius, that's 900 degrees Fahrenheit. This high temperature industrial heat across all industrial sectors is about a third of industrial emissions and another 10% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So how do steel, cement, and industrial heat each produce so many emissions? Let's take a deeper dive. Let's first consider cement. Calcium carbonate, more commonly known as limestone, is formed of one calcium, one carbon, and three oxygen atoms. This rock, heated up in a cement kiln at 1400 degrees Celsius, decomposes into carbon dioxide and lime, also known as calcium oxide. The lime is combined with clays at that high temperature to form clinker, an intermediary product. That clinker is cooled and ground down into powder, which is how we get our typical cement. Because we are fundamentally decomposing calcium carbonate into calcium oxide and carbon dioxide, for each molecule of limestone we turn into lime, we're releasing one carbon dioxide molecule. That means for each ton of limestone we process to cement, we produce about half a ton of carbon dioxide from this decomposition reaction alone. The fascinating thing about cement is that there's no real standard formula. No two batches of cement are chemically identical. In fact, the European standard defines the most widely used type of cement, Portland cement, as the following. It shall consist of at least two-thirds by mass of calcium silicates, the remainder consisting of aluminum and iron-containing compounds and other compounds. The ratio of calcium oxide to silica clay shall not be less than two. With this simple, bare definition, it's clear that all sorts of various minerals and metallic compounds could be included to make cements with different properties. It is critical to recognize that cement is not the same as concrete. In fact, cement is utilized in a number of construction materials, including bricks, mortar, and yes, concrete. Cement can be described as a sort of glue in these materials. When you add water to cement, it actually starts to react with the carbon dioxide in the air to form calcium carbonate again. If during the process you add aggregates such as gravel, it will hold them together to form concrete. Concrete doesn't contain as much cement as you might think, though. Cement is usually less than 20% of the concrete you'd see in the bridge or unfinished skyscraper. Extending the glue analogy, you wouldn't make a structure by using tons of glue and little substance. The reason why cement emissions remain high, however, is that the reaction is never completely reversed. Not all calcium oxide is converted back to calcium carbonate when water is added to cement. Concrete is the second most utilized material in the world, after water. So even though it absorbs some carbon dioxide, the immense quantity of concrete utilized causes cement production to be a huge overall emitter of greenhouse gases.
Steel is a similarly complex material, formed from the combination of pure iron and small amounts of other metals like chromium, manganese, nickel, and tungsten. The process of refining iron ore, made up of iron and oxygen atoms, into usable raw iron creates a large amount of carbon dioxide. Here to explain more is Professor Donald Sadaway of MIT's Materials Science Department and founder of Boston Metal, a startup looking to decarbonize metal production. Right now the way we make steel is that we feed a blast furnace, which is a chemical reactor. And uh, the blast furnace is, uh, the feedstock is iron oxide, which is derived from iron ore. And that uh, iron oxide goes into the blast furnace along with carbon. It's a form of carbon called coke. And that chemical reaction takes the oxygen away from the iron oxide, leaves behind iron, and up the stack goes uh, carbon dioxide. That raw pig iron tends to absorb a lot of the carbon from the coke, which makes it very brittle and not very useful. Thus, to make steel, oxygen is blown over the liquid metal to form additional carbon dioxide molecules, reducing the carbon content of the resultant steel. So you have both carbon in the process and carbon to provide the heat to get the process to the operating temperature. So if we want to decarbonize, we have to think about not only the, the carbon in the reaction, but the carbon that gets us to the temperature needed for the reaction. With steel processes requiring temperatures of more than 1200 degrees Celsius, you can imagine that this builds up emissions incredibly quickly. Just like cement, steel production inherently releases carbon dioxide due to the chemical reaction and use of high temperature heat. Due to the nature of the process though, producing one ton of steel emits 1.9 tons of carbon dioxide as opposed to 0.9 tons per ton of cement. That's more than twice the amount of carbon dioxide for steel. Thus, even though concrete is a much more common material than steel, the more emissions-intense steelmaking process actually causes it to emit more emissions overall. Critical to both steel and cement production are those high temperatures needed for chemical reactions to occur. We've glossed over the details of industrial heat a bit, which has its own specific challenges. So there's a handful of challenges around industrial heat that are specific to industrial heat. One of them is actually just the quality of the heat. In many cases, it has to be high temperature. There's not a lot of things that can deliver that. So that limits the field a lot. Now speaking is Dr. Julio Friedman, Senior Research Scholar at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. The second is the quality of the heat in terms of its flux. You need a lot of heat for a long time in enormous volumes, right? You can't melt iron ore with just, you know, a second of high temperature heat, right? For context, one ton of steel requires about 24.5 gigajoules of energy, or about enough energy to power 225 average American homes for a full day. Given that most modern steelworks will process thousands of tons of steel a day, you can imagine the amount of heat required and emissions this produces. There's another component of it, which is the deposition of the heat. You have to get the heat into the system. And we have really put a lot of effort into optimizing deposition of heat through combustion. When you change away from a combustion-based system, you're changing just things a lot. You run into efficiency challenges, operational challenges, sensor and control challenges, all of these other things that are very real. 
and hard to surmount. So, for industrial heat, we see three main challenges. It's high temperature nature, the quantity of heat required, and the method of heat deposition. Thus, with the high emissions from burning fossil fuels for heat, the inherent carbon dioxide released from production processes, and the high demand for steel and cement products, it's no wonder that these industries are such heavy emitters of GHGs. This, of course, begs the question, how do we tackle these challenges? To reduce emissions in the industrial sector, we can think of four main strategies. One, improve the current processes for making materials, namely energy efficiency. Two, change the processes for making materials, such as electrification or hydrogen substitution. Three, reduce use or demand for materials, such as recycling and other circular economy measures. And four, substitution of the end materials with something else, such as replacing steel with mass timber. So, to reiterate, we have four areas for improvement. Efficiency, processes, demand, and substitution. We can approach these changes in many, many ways, all of which involve various levels of technology, policy, and economics. While I'm only going to highlight some of the most prominent approaches here, focusing on changing processes and changing demand, there are a wide variety of opinions on what the best methods are. But before we get there, it's important to understand the historical context of industrial emissions. Dr. Friedman explains. So the historical innovation agenda has really been dominated by one and only one element, which is efficiency. And this is not a surprise. Because energy is such an enormous cost component of heavy industry, there's a high value proposition to efficiency. One of the things this means is that most of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. Over the past 40 years, the steel industry has increased its efficiency 60%. So not much more that they're going to get out of that, right? There has also been a long-standing academic thread on dematerialization. Can you use less concrete, less steel, less carbon composites and so forth to do the same job? That has a lot of scholarship. It doesn't have a lot to show for it. The overall premise is things like, let's modify building codes to, to use better science to contribute to the dematerialization of skyscrapers. That is a reasonable thing to propose. It actually means somebody has to get in there over years and change building codes. So far, that hasn't gone very far. The rest of the innovation agenda is basically stillborn. There's almost nothing on it. There's a couple of examples here and there. So companies like Boston Metal, for example, is not a deep bench of that stuff. And the primary reason why is because there's no money to support it. As a research scientist, it's hard to imagine somebody entering that field if they can't get paid. So until there are research grants and until there are companies doing that research, it's unlikely that we're gonna see much of a change for that. It's important to understand there's a policy antecedent to this. Many heavy industries are considered essential industries. Countries like Korea, like steel is an essential industry, and for Germany and for others, or cement and concrete, those are considered essential domestic supplies. So about 20 years ago, when people began to propose carbon limits, many of those industries were exempted by law. They stand outside the existing emissions reduction statutes, which meant they had very little incentive to work on it. So that's changed over the past few years. As countries' ambitions have become higher, as things like the one and a half degree report from the IPCC have made clear that we must have 
much more rapid and much more profound emissions reductions. The leaders of those companies and leaders in those countries have begun to take that challenge seriously. And so we're starting to see some evolution on that, but again, it's early days. It is early days indeed. There are some threads of innovation that are being worked on, though. So with a better understanding of the history of the problem, let's take a look at current actions being taken. When it comes to decarbonization, one thing usually comes to mind, electrification. We have renewable energy being cheaper to build and operate than to just operate a coal plant. So if we could find a way to do things electrically, when the electrical grid becomes cleaner, that means industry would automatically become cleaner as well. This is definitely possible for low to medium temperature heat under that 500 degrees Celsius level. You can simply put electricity through a material with high resistance, which releases the energy as pure heat, a process known as resistive heating. This is nearly 100% efficient. Other technologies, like heat pumps, can do an even better job. Heat pumps are often more than 100% efficient. They can move more energy from a colder place to a warmer place than the amount of energy required to do that work. For example, a typical residential heat pump can move 3 kilowatts of thermal power for every 1 kilowatt of electrical power used, giving an effective efficiency of 300%. Installing a heat pump is more complicated and has a higher upfront cost compared to resistive heating, though, so there are trade-offs. What's certain is that both methods run on electricity, and thus can be easy methods of decarbonizing low-temperature heat. I spoke about this point with Professor Mike Lennox of the University of Virginia's Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative at the Darden School of Business. At this point, at least in places like the United States, it's actually cost-wise fairly even between using an electrical like heat pump versus using a natural gas-powered furnace. In a lot of these industrial processes, if you're building new, if you're building new manufacturing capabilities, it, it shouldn't be that hard to kind of provide the incentives to push for electrification. Interestingly enough, according to the International Energy Agency, low and medium temperature heat demand will propel 75% of industrial growth between now and 2040. So this is quite important for considering future growth. But we must consider that heat in steel and cement production is hard to electrify at the ultra-high temperatures needed. Using resistive heating and heat pumps is much harder or next to impossible at this high temperature, respectively. And there's also the issue of getting the heat into highly designed systems. Remember Dr. Friedman's points on the quantity of heat and methods of heat deposition. Electrification in those areas also doesn't solve the problem that a chemical reaction is needed to process limestone into lime and iron ore into pure iron. One option to get around these issues is to change the production process completely. It turns out that roughly 30% of steel in the world is already produced through electric arc furnaces, which use electricity. Professor Lennox tells the story of their development. That story is an interesting one where you had large steel companies like U.S. Steel, U.S.X, who really were leaders in the U.S. steel industry for many decades and really uh, heavily used the basic oxygen furnace as the dominant technology, which is, again, a, a greenhouse gas technology. 
you had this upstart company in the 50s and 60s, Nucor Steel, who was using this mini-mill technology or electric arc furnace, which again, if you, if you use renewables, could be decarbonized. And so in the US at least, uh, Nucor Steel has grown and really that technology has become more dominant. There are some limits to it though. So the main reason that uh, mini mills and electric arc furnaces are less carbon intensive is because you're using recycled steel. And so you're burning recycled steel then to create new steel products. Thus, while electric arc furnace technology can be relatively easily decarbonized, the limitations are quite clear. If there's not enough recycled steel or the price to get it is too high, this method just can't compete with a traditional method. Furthermore, there are certain classes of steels that better lend themselves to basic oxygen furnace production, either due to higher production quality or stronger consumer trust in the product. This latter point of production quality is something Professor Sadaway is trying to achieve with his startup, Boston Metal. In the molten oxide electrolysis system that he designed, electricity is used to separate the iron ore into its component parts, producing pure iron and oxygen gas. The raw iron can then be precisely processed into steels with desired material characteristics. This process can be extended to other metals, too. I believe that all the chemical reactions can be replaced by electrochemical reactions because a chemical reaction is just a shift in electronic state. So instead of using the carbon to be the bearer of the electrons, just have an electrode that injects the electrons. This idea of electrochemically processing raw materials instead of processing them with heat has been extended to cement as well, with Dr. Leah Ellis of MIT spinning out her research into the startup Sublime Systems. But Sublime Systems has barely left the lab, and Boston Metal, founded in 2012, is just barely getting to commercial scale. The challenges before Boston Metal are to demonstrate that the process can work at scale. Let's not forget that 2018, world steel was uh, 1.8 billion tons. 1.8 billion tons. So this is not the coffee cup on the lab bench at MIT. And you can wave your hands and say, by analogy, we can expect that we can produce this. But there are so many barriers in the way when you're trying to take something that works under the careful control and nurturing of uh, a number of bright students at MIT with their white lab coats on, and now you're in industry, and you've got to turn tons of iron oxide into tons of liquid steel, and do that day after day with Six Sigma quality uh, output and so on. So the whole business of scaling up the process, there are so many different challenges there. These challenges are particularly hard given the commodity nature of steel. Competition largely depends on price, making costs hugely important. Steel is one of the smallest margins, most tightly competitive markets in the world. A very small change in the price of steel for a manufacturer, say a half a percent cost or a 1% cost, could place them out of the market completely. Many years, the margins are as low as 5%. Many years, they're negative margins. You're losing money on steel production, but you have to keep the facility running to stay in the market. And so those very, very small changes of cost in a global commodity market look really different than, say, an electricity surcharge in your house. 
Because of cost and viability concerns from customers and regulators, there's always a hesitance to adopt new technologies. Professor Sadaway expands on this point with regards to displacing current processes with molten oxide electrolysis. My feeling is that there's going to be, again, a huge barrier to early adoption. You know, when you have an industry like this, which is huge, it's capital intensive, very risk averse, virtually all of the steel is made by the same process worldwide. Nobody wants to be the first. We're not talking about a change, we're talking about radical innovation. Almost everything that you have on site at an integrated steelworks today is not going to be used. They don't want to take the wrecking ball to something that still has 25 years of life in it. So I like to say nobody wants to be first, everyone wants to be first to be second. But generally, electrification is arguably underexplored. There should certainly be more ways to attack this problem using renewable electricity that just haven't been looked at. We turn back to Dr. Friedman. The first approach is just we need widgets. We need stuff we don't have. He urges to keep in mind the bigger picture, though. One of the big challenges here in terms of lack of research is a lot of scientists want to work on the big replacement thing. They're like, we're going to throw all that old stuff out, we're going to place it with some big shiny new stuff, right? If you do that, you are condemning ourselves to 30 years of emissions because the existing capital stock has a slow turnover rate. So there's a whole field of work to be done on retrofitting existing plants. The first cement plant I ever visited had been running for 100 years and plans to run for another 100 years, right? <laughs> like that's, you know, a lot of steel mills in the United States have run for 60 years and plan to run for another 60 years. So modifying existing capital stock is tough engineering work, right? And there's been almost no research on it. It's just one company here, one government there, uh, for a couple of years, like we need a long sustained innovation agenda for these things. Professor Lennox also touches on similar ideas using cement as a case study. One of the exciting things I think in the cement area is there's actually opportunities for cement to be a carbon sink that actually absorbs carbon dioxide as it's setting uh, in its use. So there is potential it could even be a, a net zero emitting source. It just hasn't found widespread commercialization yet. And, and one of the challenges is partly cost, as often is the case, it's more expensive to use this. The other is actually concerns about its viability. And so some of that is just takes time. Uh, and so when you think about like building codes, there's sometimes building codes that actually require you to use Portland cement because it's been a proven effective cement where these new cements haven't um, been in use long enough to kind of prove their case that for 30 years the cement's going to hold. And as a result, there's actually even sometimes regulatory barriers to the adoption of the new cement. Again, these are all things that, you know, by changes in policy, we could help advance and try to drive the change in the industry. But as things currently stand, it's not likely that this is just going to occur naturally on its own. Like, there really needs to be some type of policy push, I think, here to try to, to green cement. So on balance, new technologies are needed, but they need to take into account the existing infrastructure and problems. In addition to cost, there's often significant barriers for customers on what sort of materials can be purchased for mission-critical infrastructure. Creating a silver bullet technology that can't be integrated into the status quo and only disrupts it won't solve the problem, and a consistent regulatory framework that promotes innovation is required for change. One potentially useful widget in the toolbox is hydrogen as a potential answer to the industrial heat problem. 
When burned, it's able to produce temperatures comparable to natural gas and coal. It can be substituted into modified natural gas systems given their similar gaseous natures, and it can be used in certain processes for steel production. It's projected that it could be transported in natural gas pipelines with a few tweaks, and hydrogen use in fuel cells and fertilizer production are already quite established industries. The European Union has promised 67 billion US dollars of investments in green hydrogen, and the recent COVID-19 stimulus package included another 33 billion dollars for the technology. Unfortunately, the process of actually replacing the entirety of steel, cement, and other industrial production with hydrogen may still be infeasible. A study by the International Energy Agency, IEA, showed that two steel plants would need to be retrofit or built every month for the next 30 years in order to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. This rate of construction is possible China built steel plants at a faster rate during their industrialization, but with a relatively unproven technology, it certainly would not make it easy. Today, only 1% of steel is produced with this method, largely due to the relative lack of stable hydrogen prices at a low enough cost. Thus, Dr. Friedman calls for additional innovation and exploration of hydrogen production. We want lower cost electrolyzers to make green hydrogen. We want novel methane cracking technologies to make blue hydrogen. The current production of hydrogen from natural gas, gray hydrogen, produces significant amounts of carbon dioxide. However, when most people think of hydrogen production, they think of using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen in a process known as electrolysis. Realistically, that method for green hydrogen is but a hope right now. According to the IEA, Producing hydrogen from electrolysis is often twice the cost of gas steam reforming, the current gray hydrogen method. This is due to the high cost of catalyst materials, which are required for electrolysis to occur. Though this topic has been a huge point of research in the material science community, there's another method that could leapfrog this need, a middle ground known as blue hydrogen, which is currently about a third more expensive than gray hydrogen, uses the same process, but incorporates carbon emissions capture. While inherently more expensive than gray hydrogen, due to the cost of green hydrogen, blue hydrogen is currently our best bet if we want a significant hydrogen economy. This leads us to carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration, or CCUS. If you've been around conversations of climate and energy, you've almost certainly heard a significant amount about this technology, so I'll keep it brief. Carbon capture, utilization, and storage is actually Dr. Friedman's specialty area of research, but Professor Lennox also has some thoughts. Ultimately, I think we're gonna have to think about carbon capture and storage again. So from an industrial process standpoint, it's an additional cost. No matter how you wanna think about it, it's always an additional cost. And as a result, the only way we're going to see massive adoption of, of, of carbon capture and storage is if there's some government regulation, if there's some either price put on carbon emissions or just simply regulatory requirements that you capture those greenhouse gas emissions. The costs are indeed currently quite hard to surmount. Estimates done by the Energy Transitions Committee have pegged the full cost of capturing all emissions from steel and cement processes to be about $120 and $60, respectively. But the United States has actually made proactive advancements in regulatory pushes in this sector. 
This has primarily been through the 2018 expansion of the tax credit incentive under code 45Q, which provides power plants and industrial facilities a tax credit per ton of carbon captured. Unfortunately, the value per metric ton captured is only $35 per metric ton at its fullest level. That full credit requires utilization of the captured carbon dioxide in enhanced oil recovery, currently the only large-scale, economically viable use for captured carbon dioxide. As you can imagine, using carbon dioxide from emissions sources to pump more oil out of the ground has never shown to be an overall carbon negative. Emissions are definitely reduced compared to pumping oil and making materials separately, but this cannot get us down to zero. At the current 45Q valuation, however, even this incentive is not enough to create a substantial number of financeable projects across industry and power generation. A study done by Dr. Friedman supports increasing 45Q tax credits to $60 to $110 for all in total value, similar to the Energy Transition Committee estimates to fully support development of CCUS projects. It should be mentioned that a vast array of other technical approaches to solve these problems have not been discussed. A few such examples are replacing cement clinker with different materials, creating new cementless concrete compounds, and better ways of incorporating scrap steel. But ultimately, the rapid scale-up of new carbon-free methods for producing steel, cement, and heat by 2050 is unlikely at best, and doesn't solve the problem of decarbonizing current processes. Given additional technology development and government support, carbon capture, utilization, and storage may be our best bet for fully and rapidly decarbonizing industries that can't incorporate electrification or hydrogen. For now, it seems that electrification, hydrogen, and CCUS seem to be the biggest bets for technological change. With so many barriers to overcome, technologically, fiscally, politically, the process of directly decarbonizing industry can seem incredibly daunting. It is important to keep perspective, though. Just 10 years ago, the idea that the entire U.S. electrical grid could possibly be 90% clean by 2035, as shown in a recent Berkeley report, would have been considered crazy. It will be a challenge, but it is worth considering other regulatory and fiscal approaches that can create an overarching framework for success. Let's first consider who's buying and using all of these materials in the first place. What can they be doing to create demand for these emissions-free materials? Professor Sadaway considers options for the deployment of Boston Metals technology. My guess is that the first adopter is going to be somebody who's either upstream, like a mining company that mines and sells iron oxide for pennies, and now is saying, well, why don't we convert dirt to metal and, and get the value of the, of the metal? Plus, we could put the smelter next to the mine, and instead of shipping dirt with all the stuff that's eventually going to be removed, why don't we just ship the finished metal? Or it could be a user downstream. It could be somebody like an automobile company. Let's not forget, when Henry Ford built the Ford Motor Plant, he built an integrated steelworks. That way he had a secure steel supply. He took iron ore from the Mesabi Range in Minnesota, put it on a freighter, took it through the Great Lakes, and 
dirt comes in to the smelter and out comes not steel, out comes a finished automobile. Outside of direct implementation or incorporation of technologies, companies can also use their massive purchasing power to push for change. Professor Lennox explains. Large downstream companies, either producers of goods or uh, like retailers, like a Walmart, they can be very effective of driving up the supply chain, the incentives that the industrial firms might need to begin to change their practices. We don't know who we bought our steel from, our cement from, our petrochemicals from. Uh, we see the downstream um, companies. So you take a company like Apple, who justifiably you know, is concerned about the environmental footprint of their phones and other products, and they know their customers care about these issues. Apple's recent announcement to make all of their products and their supply chain carbon neutral by 2030 is not insignificant. Apple uses a lot of aluminum, which is the second most polluting metal production process at about 1% of global emissions. This is primarily due to dirty electricity used in the production process, so increasing use of renewables can make a big dent here. But Apple has also committed to additional recycling, global reforestation and afforestation projects, and expanding industrial energy efficiency. This may be among the most ambitious of corporate goals, though especially of the companies that produce a lot of physical products. According to a Fast Company analysis, only about 23% of the Fortune 500 have made any sort of public commitment to climate action by 2030. Given that they form about 17% of world GDP, it's clear that more commitments like Apple's could really make a huge difference and shine as an example of climate leadership. Strangely enough, though, Probably the best example of this purchasing power argument is actually the government. Buy clean is a classic example of what I was calling a demand pull strategy. It's a market creation strategy. Buy clean is a recent movement that focuses on using the government's purchasing power, relatively deep pockets, and lack of need for profitability to push for beneficial outcomes for the public. Basically, the idea is that the two highest emitting industries, which are steel and cement, mostly what they're making is building materials. So about 60% of steel and basically 100% of cement goes into buildings, roads, aqueducts, other civil engineering works. And so who is the largest purchaser of building materials? Well, it's the government. Here in the US, Half of all cement is purchased with tax dollars and about 20% of steel. Uh, and most of that goes into infrastructure. That 50% of cement and 20% of steel being purchased directly by the US government is also generally true for governments around the world. So who better than the government to say, we want to buy clean alternatives and we're willing to offer something of value in exchange for those clean products. Now that thing of value, it can be a premium price. It can be, we'll just pay extra for clean cement versus regular cement. It could also be things like, we'll, there are certain contracts that we'll give you preferential eligibility for. So you'll get market access or you'll get accelerated permitting. There's a lot of things that the government can do that are valuable in addition to just paying extra. But the idea is that we use the power of the public purse to create a market for clean alternatives to traditional cement and traditional construction steel products. 
While the exact definition of clean can and should vary a little bit from location to location depending on the energy mix and availability of resources, the general idea of incentivizing improvements is critical. Clean can be defined in many ways, but one of those dimensions should be life cycle carbon footprint compared to some industrial average. And then they can basically say, we will create that standard, it'll ratchet down over a number of years, and we will start buying maybe 3%, maybe 5% of what's our total volume with the expectation that that will grow through time to 10% or 50%. This might seem a bit authoritarian or too much of a command-driven economy, which it certainly is to an extent. But this is nothing new for the government. Buy clean basically is a procurement mandate. To be clear, this is something governments have done many, many times. The clearest example of this was that Congress mandated the Department of Defense to buy biofuels. They just said, go out and buy biofuels. That created biofuels companies overnight. That created biorefineries. If you know that there is a military offtake agreement, you can use that contract to get financing for a project. Almost every advanced technology began with government procurements. Semiconductors, flat screen TVs, and in the energy arena, solar panels, batteries, fuel cells, these were all government procurements. And that got us down a steep part of the learning curve. We should expect the same thing for these technologies. The incredible thing is, even though the price of decarbonizing steel or cement drastically increases the prices of those commodities, the effect on the overall cost of a finished good a car, a bridge, a home, is incredibly low. Say you increase the price of cement 100%, right? The cost of a bridge only goes up 1%. And a bridge is almost entirely concrete, let's, let's be clear. And the reason why is because most of the cost is in stuff like land costs, debt costs, labor costs. The same thing is true for something like an automobile. Very little of the cost of an automobile is actually the cost of steel. So if you triple the price of steel, the cost of a car goes up 2%. Most of it is the cost of design, fabrication, marketing, all of these other sorts of things. And so because these commodities are an arm's length away from most people, they don't quite understand what this means. Most people don't go to the store to buy 10,000 tons of concrete. And so it sounds like from a wholesale perspective, the cost will change a lot. And the reason why is because it will. But from the cost of a finished product, it's small. It's important to say that doesn't make it easy. We heard earlier about the incredibly tiny margins the steel industry has, for example. Tripling the production cost of steel is still incredibly risky for any manufacturer to take, especially if their production of regular steel occasionally results in a loss. Thus, governments that look to use economic incentives and disincentives need to be very careful about how they design policy so carbon doesn't leak in the form of outsourcing this manufacturing. So even though the cost of a finished good may change very little, the policy design necessary to bring that stuff to market is essential to avoid bad outcomes like just offshoring all your domestic production to Indonesia, which is not really what anyone's looking for here. It's still early days for this sort of legislation, though. Though there is some pending legislation that is buy clean-esque in the U.S. House and Senate, the only jurisdiction with such a law in the U.S. is in California. If everybody in the USA could come with us to California, we could take them to a place out west where the good sun shines every day. Now there's a touch of California. California is generally recognized as a symbol of progressive climate action 
and their regulatory approaches and emphases have truly shown this. I spoke with Rajinder Sahoda, the chief of the Industrial Strategies Division of the California Air Resources Board, or CARB. She provided a great overview of California's past, present, and future plans. So our emissions profile is a bit unique just in the amount of jobs and activity that happens in California, the size of the state, the jobs that lie within the industrial sectors. You know, California has a very diverse manufacturing and technology sector. I think we have the largest amount of manufacturing jobs in the U.S. You don't think of California as that, but it does. We are also an oil producing state, so we have the industrial sector being dominated by the oil and gas refining side. That's about half of the industrial emissions in the state. All the way back in 2006, California passed AB32, the Global Warming Solutions Act, in part due to Governor Schwarzenegger's leadership on climate at the time. It set the then ambitious goals of reducing emissions in 2020 to 1990 levels. In that very first scoping plan, we had a suite of policies, everything from energy efficiency, low carbon transportation fuels, low carbon electricity, a cap and trade program, high global warming gases, refrigerants. That package together really makes up the entire portfolio for California and it's worked. So what we've shown is that our emissions fell back to 1990 levels in 2016, four years earlier than mandated in AB 32. But then we got a new piece of legislation, SB 32, which talks about a 40% reduction from 1990 levels by 2030. So much steeper decline in emissions. So there's been a lot of discussion probably for the last five years, how to get at the industrial sector, because the lowest hanging fruit pretty much was dealt with in getting to that 2020 target. Now we're looking at things that are gonna cost a little bit more than they traditionally did because they're not the low hanging fruit, things that are gonna be a bit more nuanced and complicated in the industrial sector because they may have already done the process improvements that save them money on energy procurement or increase their productivity. So these kinds of really sensible options have already taken place in California. Thus, a new suite of policies was needed to address this harder challenge. Among the policies passed in support of the new ambitions of the 2030 goal, was California's version of the Buy Clean Law in 2017, AB 262. It has set limits on the maximum global warming potential for some steel, glass, and insulation materials that can be purchased by the California government. Notably absent from that list, though, is cement. We come back to Dr. Dell. A major shortcoming of California's law is that it does not cover the most important building material from the Buy Clean perspective which is to say it does not cover cement. California's law is about incentivizing best current practices. One thing that California's law does not do is provide an incentive for firms to achieve levels of environmental performance that are even better than what's currently available. So California's law is great for kind of excluding the bad actors. It's less effective for incentivizing investments and innovation. The other thing about the Buy Clean Law was, despite being passed in 2017, the program will not come into full force until 2021. This is completely reasonable. Such considerations need to be phased in over time as not to upset businesses and create shocks. But it's a reminder that policy changes create lasting change over long periods of time. Time will tell about the effectiveness of this program and for Buy Clean in general. 
With easy wins like improving industrial efficiency already taken care of in California, the CARB sought out a method for incentivizing broad change while still allowing for individual actors to make their own decisions on emissions. After much deliberation, they decided to extend their world-renowned cap-and-trade program as the most prominent, most direct method of attacking emissions. And then when 2017 rolled around, this question came up again, what do we do for post-2020? We looked at options that were across the board. We looked at cap-and-trade, we looked at cap-and-tax, which is you still have a cap, but you tax every emission regardless. We looked at a carbon tax, and then we looked at a suite of policies where everything was direct regulation. And as part of that whole process of doing that scoping plan, we had to look at the air quality benefits. We had to look at the cost effectiveness of the program total, impacts to the economy, impacts to jobs, impacts to household incomes, and do our homework to say, we looked at five different scenarios to get to 2030. This one is the right balance. So what is cap and trade? This market creation mechanism has been bandied about, most famously in the 2009 Waxman-Markey bill that failed to pass Congress in the beginning of President Obama's term. The name is self-descriptive. Cap the amount of overall emissions through designation of a certain amount of allowances and allow for trading of said allowances between high producers and low producers. So what it does is cap and trade has an aggregate cap over all of these sources in the state, the facilities, the upstream fuel suppliers. And each year that cap has been going down 2% each year from 2013 to 2020. And so a facility has to decide if they want to invest in technology to reduce their emissions today, which means they can continue to have those lower emissions moving forward, or if they want to buy allowances to cover those emissions, and then delay buying that investment in technology until some later date. So it offers some compliance flexibility. There's no mandated reduction in any given year because we're talking about a global pollutant, not a localized air pollutant that has an immediate impact on health. In general, companies are required to purchase allowances to cover the amount of emissions they'll produce each year. Each allowance allows a company to emit one ton of carbon dioxide emissions or an equivalent amount of emissions with the same global warming potential. Each allowance is given an initial value, which is then bid up at an auction. Four times a year we hold an auction. Our auction has a floor price. We had a floor price of about $12 in 2013, and it's up to, I think, almost $16, $70, or even $17 right now. And so each year that floor price goes up 5% plus inflation. So companies know if they're not gonna take action today and they need allowances three or four years from now, it's gonna go up 5% plus inflation each year. So they should factor that in in their investment decision and timing for their investments to reduce emissions in their facility. Some might look at those prices and say, only $16 or $17 per ton of emissions? Didn't we need, for example, a carbon price of $120 to incentivize carbon capture for steel processes? So one of the things that people often ask me is, hey, there was a report that came out that said you need $100 per ton price to actually see change, and your prices are $16, $17. And my response is, have you seen the prices for the other programs that also cover these sectors? Because when you add them all together, you're getting up there to $100 across the entire suite of policies that we have. So cap and trade only reflects one portion of the carbon price embedded in the economy because the direct regs add other carbon prices in the economy. They're just not as overt as cap and trade with a dollar sign at an auction. 
It should be noted that not all emissions in California are regulated by cap and trade, for example, agriculture, but Ms. Sahoda notes that all bases are covered. And if you're not in the cap and trade program, you're probably directly regulated by some other program in the state because we don't let you off the hook either. So for example, dairies aren't in it, but dairies have their own program to limit their greenhouse gases. And so do fugitives from refrigerants. With this sale of allowances, the state of California has generated immense revenues that can be reinvested back into the state's goals. Those allowances are sold, the money comes back to the state, and we've raised $13 billion since 2013. And the money is not up to ARB on how to spend it, it's up to the legislature and the governor and the administration as part of regular budget negotiations. So every year they come up with a budget and it's decided how the money is going to be used. Historically, over 50% of that $13 billion has gone into disadvantaged communities. The positive results from California's decarbonization are less apparent in other regions that have implemented cap-and-trade systems, such as Europe, the U.S. Northeast, and Australia. These initiatives critically also did not have price floors or price ceilings, creating significant volatility in the market. In Europe, where faulty predictions of emissions set the 2007 cap amount too high, an oversupply of allowances dropped their prices to zero. Thus, the emissions trading system was initially regarded as ineffective. Even nine years later, a 2016 survey of German companies participating in the EU emissions trading system found only weak incentives were generated for firms to adopt carbon reduction measures. Australia's program, created in 2012, was repealed just a year later after fierce industry and voter opposition. Given that cap-and-trade is generally quite complex to implement, some have called for more straightforward interventions, such as a direct carbon tax. While there is some implementation complexity there as well, for example, you wouldn't want to double tax gasoline, the guarantee on the price theoretically allows for much more simple planning by financiers and businesses. The political prospect of passing such a wide measure with a stigma of the word tax attached to it is slim, though. Furthermore, as emissions must both be measured and counted in both circumstances, a cap-and-trade program with a decreasing cap can lead to more guaranteed emissions reductions, whereas taxes and fees may be passed on in a large part to consumers. California decided to continue its cap-and-trade program after detailed analysis of its scoping plans and conversations with stakeholders. That's why the scoping plans are so important and the five-year check-ins are so important there because it lets you engage in that discussion again and say, here's our targets that the legislature set. The governors have signed these pieces of legislation. They are on the books. We as the lead agency are gonna get there somehow. We're gonna tell you the options we have to get there. We're gonna do our homework on the analyses and then you guys have a chance to help pick the right one. If you don't like what we're offering and you want me to look at something else, I can look at it but I'm still gonna use the same analyses and our board's gonna pick one and that's the one we're gonna go with. And that's pretty much what happened in 2017 in the scoping plan. We had the no cap and trade, cap and tax, carbon tax, all of prescriptive regulations and showed that some of those were 10 times more costly than a suite of policies that included cap and trade. While cap and trade definitely has its faults as well as many further nuances that were not discussed here, the important thing is, it can definitely make a big difference. Australia is not on target to reach any of its emissions reductions goals, but the EU has persisted. By continuing to push for climate-related regulation and continuing their emissions trading system, 
the EU reached their 2020 goal by the year 2016. In the U.S. Northeast, after the kinks were worked out, power sector emissions declined by over 40 percent, while state economies grew 8 percent between 2005 and 2015. And as mentioned before, California also met its 2020 emissions reduction goal by 2016. It is not a coincidence that all of these regions are well known for their commitment to environmental causes. Ms. Sahota speaks about this aspect of Californian culture. There were early signs that California was going to be a little bit different. California has always had a strong civil society that wants to protect the environment. When AB 32 was signed, it was 2006. The economy was roaring, right? And so everybody felt good about it. And then came along the Great Recession, and there were some out-of-state interests, like oil in Texas, that ran a campaign in 2010 saying that AB 32 should be suspended until unemployment drops below 4. something percent, which it had historically never been there. Overwhelmingly, Californians rejected that proposal to delay AB 32, and I think more votes were cast in opposition. Than any other election choice that was out there nationally in 2010, and it was two thirds overwhelmingly saying we reject your Prop 23. We want to keep AB 32, even as we're trying to dig our way out of an economic recession that none of us had ever experienced. And even though we've had a lot of turnover, the legislature and the administrations, even under Republican administrations, we've always had environmental legislation move forward. So there's this long history. Of working together across party lines to protect California's environmental space, but it sent the signal to industry: they're going to do something. You might as well work with them to figure out what's the best thing to do. You probably saw stories in Oregon where their legislature would just leave the building so they wouldn't vote. In California, it was our industry and their lobbyists walking the hallway saying, "Move AB 398, do cap and trade." What worked in California will not necessarily work in other jurisdictions, though, especially those with less of a culture of environmental protection. This program has largely focused on industry in the context of the United States, but as a whole, the majority of industrial emissions, especially going into the future, will come from rapidly developing industrial countries. Of course, China and India stand out here because of their outsized economic growth and large populations. China alone produces about 50% of global steel production and 70% of global cement production, compared to the United States' roughly 5% and 3%, respectively. It should be noted that the U.S. is fourth and third in the world in production of the materials, with India second in both categories, and Japan just edging out the United States in steel production. However, this manufacturing in India and especially China is a massive emitter of emissions because of heavy use of abundant coal resources. China has had stunning growth over the last two decades, with 86% of global steel production growth between 2002 and 2016, and half of China's infrastructure having been built since 2000. India and other developing nations are not growing quite as fast, but it is clear that tremendous interventions must be put in place to make sure development can happen in a sustainable manner. When we think about decarbonization, it is a moving target. We are moving in the sense that many of these industries are actually predicted and will be growing as we see both population growth and then advancements in the economies of like India and Africa. So a dream that like cement and steel will go away—I mean, that's not going to happen. If anything, the demand for that is going to increase. 
one could imagine that we could see development in some of these countries where they don't have to go through the fossil fuel driven processes and they could jump immediately to greener alternatives. And it's probably going to vary by region of the world. So certain regions might have to pull different levers than the United States would be able to pull to try to drive this change. Each unique situation will require culturally sensitive, economically prudent, and politically viable plans, which will differ significantly from place to place. But if there's one thing to take away from the story of the Californian industry's response to cap and trade, it's that the possibilities for success when all stakeholders work together towards a common goal is for the benefit of all. There's this need to really be thoughtful and deliberative in how you engage with industry because government alone is not going to find the solution and that collaboration is really going to get you there. And so in our own different way, we're all trying to send a signal that we want more development and deployment of clean fuels and clean technology. And I think we're going to get there. I think the challenge is how do you navigate in a space where you can bring the politicals along and the companies along? With so many issues in this grand problem space, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But it's important to recognize that with great problems comes the opportunity for great solutions. These solutions need to be practical, they need to incorporate all stakeholders, and they need to be daring. People are always going to have some unrealistic thing that you can switch everything overnight. It took us over 100 years to get to where we are. It's going to take a little bit of time to like move away from all of these fuels and energy that we're used to using. And no one state or one country is going to do it alone. It has to be in a way that people want and are attracted to all of the results from those programs, not just the emission side of it, but also what are the other benefits that come with doing those programs and not become a cautionary tale where you damage your economy and you've got nothing to show for yourself but no emissions. Yet it's clear that this space is ripe for innovation. We've covered electrification, use of hydrogen, carbon capture utilization and storage, we discussed interplays between cost and customer adoption and looked at government interventions like buy clean and cap and trade. It may be that only some of these innovations find success and make a difference, especially in issues of steel, cement, and industrial heat. But it's clear that technological, economic, and regulatory innovations will be critical to preserving our planet for the future. The most important thing I would suggest to you and to your listeners is just learn something. Go out there and acquaint yourself with this. And once you learn a little bit, you'll be in a position to start thinking through all of the challenges and problems. And some of those are technical problems. Some of those are market and economic problems. Some of those are policy and regulatory problems. Some of those are process engineering and supply chain problems. But boy, there's almost nobody in this space. So if you educate yourself now, you're going to be a global expert on this topic in five years. Funding for this project was granted by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Peter J. Alaranta Research Fellowship. Music and audio samples in the program were composed by Kevin McLeod, Mom Pleiser, Home, PacDV.com, and other sources listed in the show notes. A full transcript with citations and further reading will also be linked, and some of the interviews are available for full listening. 
A major thanks to Dr. Don Sadaway, Dr. Rebecca Dell, Dr. Michael Lennox, Dr. Julio Friedman, and Ms. Rajinder Sahoda for lending their expertise to this podcast, as well as Alex Hoyt, Rachel Shulman, and Dr. Elsa Olivetti for their support.